Hello and welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast presented by Overdrive. This is Joe. Hi, everyone. Today, I am going to dive into some true crime titles. Before I bring on Emma, who is joining me today, I just wanted to give a bit of a disclaimer. Of course, we recognize true crime is not for everyone. And as always, we want to handle true crime, especially with dignity and respect, because while there is a lot of fascinating insight into uh, the mind uh, or like the behavior or what causes people to commit crimes, at the end of the day, our thoughts are with the victims, with their families. And of course, we always want to be mindful and respectful of that. So we understand if true crime is not for you, if today's episode is not for you, uh, but also kind of keeping that in mind, uh, we are blending both books inspired by true crime cases and nonfiction titles. So we hope you'll stick around and give it a shot. And of course, as always, that we are mindful and respectful. But joining me today is Emma. Emma, hello. Hi, Joe. We're both thriller lovers. We both love a good mystery thriller, uh, psychological thriller, all that good stuff. But what is your love of true crime like? So yes, I do love a good mystery, a good thriller. I am also one to enjoy quite a grim thriller, but I don't tend to like it when it's real. Mm-hmm. So true crime, I have an interesting relationship with. I, I think I prefer my true crime consumed in like documentary format. Yeah, definitely. But I do appreciate a really well-written true crime novel, which is what I think we're here to to provide today. Couldn't agree more. So I have kind of like an interesting split of my top half is fiction and the latter half is nonfiction. So, you know, I guess we can we can dive in. I'll, I'll start us off if you don't mind. So my first title is from John Darnielle. He is a New York Times bestselling author and the singer-songwriter of the Mountain Goats. I love the Mountain Goats. They are like wild, folky, folksy music. And very often, if you walk up to me in the office, they are what's playing through my headphones because it's lovely and distracting. Uh, But this is an epic gripping novel about murder, truth, and the dangers of storytelling. Now, I wanted to start off with this title specifically because it calls out something that we tried to call out at the beginning. um, And I think a lot of true crime folks maybe ignore, but the reality of where true crime comes from, murder, big crime, So this is Devil House by John Darnielle. Gage Chandler is descended from kings, at least that's what his mother always told him, and years later he has found himself to be a true crime writer, with one grisly success and a movie adaptation coming from it, all to his name, along with a series of subsequent, maybe less notable efforts. But now he's being offered the chance for a big break to move into the house where a pair of briefly notorious murders occurred, apparently the work of disaffected teens during the satanic panic of the 1980s. Chandler finds himself in Milpitas, California. It's a small town and the name rings a bell. His closest childhood friend lived there once upon a time. He begins his research with diligence and enthusiasm, but soon the story leads him into a puzzle he never expected, back into his own work and what it means back to the very core of who he is and what he does. Devil House is 
kind of really ambitious, and it honestly blurs the line between fact and fiction. It combines daring formal experimentation with a spellbinding tale of crime, writing, memory, and artistic obsession. It starts as an introspection of true crime writing and truly becomes a blur and makes you question what is real. So it's that that really cool kind of realm of... Uh, can we trust our narrator? Are they losing it in this murder house? So that is Devil House by John Darnielle. And that's where I think, yeah, a little bit of mixed emotions. We're mm-hmm. certainly fascinated by these stories, but we do remember that they're real people. And so it, it is just that, you know, that balance of right. finding these things interesting, but also not, we don't want to glorify them or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah, this comes down to just like, almost, it it really is like a call out post to all of the true crime lovers who obsess over true crime, perhaps, or like are in love with serial killers and, and that and it just is like, oh, it it really, I don't know, his work is very transformative. And very often you go like, wait, what just happened? (laughs) So it's an interesting look, and probably maybe the furthest of my list from either inspired by a crime or is a storytelling of a crime. So it's an interesting one. Yeah. And so for my first pick, I have a book that came out earlier this year. It's called Hell's Half Acre, The Untold Story of the Benders, A Serial Killer Family on the American Frontier by Susan Jonasis. And this is really interesting. I actually didn't know that the Benders were a real family. So I've heard mention of them in like television shows, like Supernatural, <laughs> shout out CW. And I I truly had no idea that that was based on a real family until I stumbled across this book. And so in 1873, the people of Lambert County, Kansas made a grisly discovery Buried by a trailside cabin beneath an orchard of young apple trees were the remains of countless bodies. Below the cabin itself was a cellar stained with blood. The Benders, the family of four who once resided on the property, were nowhere to be found. The discovery sent the local community and national newspapers into a frenzy that continued for decades, sparking an epic manhunt for the Benders. The idea that a family of seemingly respectable homesteaders, one among the thousands relocating farther west in search of land and opportunity after the Civil War, were capable of operating a human slaughter pen, appalled and fascinated the nation. But who the Benders really were, why they committed such vicious killing spree, and whether justice ever caught up to them is a mystery that remains unsolved to this day. Set against the backdrop of post-bellum America, Hell's Half Acre explores the environment capable of allowing such horrors to take place. So this book draws on extensive original archival material. Susan Jonasis introduces us to a fascinating cast of characters, many of whom have been previously missing from this story that we may have heard before about the Benders. So that does include, um, you know, the families of the victims, the hapless detectives who lost the trail, and the fugitives that fugitives that helped the murderers escape. So this is a really well-rounded look at the entire family and the whole situation with a lot of reference to historical perspective and wow, that these folks were never found. 
It's so wild to to think of that, that they were never found. And also that it has basically blurred into the realm of myth. Yes. That they weren't even real, that they are inspiration for Supernatural. Like, yeah, they've truly just become an urban legend, but these were real criminals. Right. Like, where it kind of, see, and that's the thing I like, it kind of took on folklore. And so yeah. I kind of just assumed, I mean, speaking in the Supernatural adaptation, like, oh yeah, this is creepy this is in the realm having no idea that it was based on a real family in kansas from the 1870s and that there's not necessarily any resolution to what happened to them and i think this book kind of tries to put together some of those pieces about where they ended up um even though detectives at the time seemingly lost all leads so a really interesting book. This is Hell's Half Acre by Susan Jonasis. Excellent. That's sounds super fascinating. So my next novel draws inspiration from a 1954 case in Ohio. In July 1954, Dr. Sam Shepard was accused of the murder of his wife while his son slept in the next room. Shepard claimed his innocence and that the actual murder had knocked him unconscious before escaping. Shepard was convicted in a media frenzy of a trial and served 10 years of a life sentence before that conviction was overturned on appeal. And then there was never anyone charged in the case after the fact. So there has never been resolution on the murder of Shepard's wife. So this is Mr. Peanut by Adam Ross. This is kind of a novel adaptation or a kind of inspired novel from this case of Sam Shepard. Um, and it is described as mesmerizing, exhilarating, and profoundly moving. It's a police procedural of the soul, a poignant investigation of the relentlessly mysterious human heart. David Pepin has been in love with his wife, Alice, since the moment they met in a university seminar on Alfred Hitchcock. After 13 years of marriage, he still can't imagine a remote, happy, a remotely happy life without her. Yet he obsessively contemplates her demise. Soon, she is dead, and David is both deeply distraught and the prime suspect. The detectives investigating Alice's suspicious death have plenty of personal experience with conjugal enigmas. Ward Hastral is happily married until his wife inexplicably becomes voluntarily and militantly bedridden. And Sam Shepard is especially sensitive to the intricacies of marital guilt and innocence, having decades before been convicted and then exonerated of the brutal murder of his wife. Like the Escher drawings that inspire the computer games David designs for a living, these complex interlocking dramas are structurally and emotionally intense, subtle, and intriguing. They brilliantly explore the warring impulses of affection and hatred and pose a host of arresting questions. Is it possible to know anyone fully, completely? Are murder and marriage two sides of the same coin, each endlessly recycling into the other? And what in the end is the truth about love? So that is Mr. Peanut by Adam Ross. That sounds fascinating. And I hope marriage and murder are not two sides of the same coin. Right. Goodness. But I do know there's that that sort of adage that it's always the person closest. Right. It's always the husband. It's always the boyfriend. Right. My next pick is similarly gripping. This one is called Catch the Sparrow, 
a search for a sister and the truth of her murder by Rachel Rear. This also came out at the start of 2022. And growing up, Rachel Rear knew the story of Stephanie Kopchinski's disappearance. She was a beautiful violinist and teacher who had fled an abusive relationship and made a new start for herself near Rochester, New York. She was at the height of her life in a relationship with a man she hoped to marry and close to her students and her family. And then one morning she was gone around Rochester, a region which has spawned such serial killers as Arthur Shawcross and the double initial killer. Stephanie's disappearance was just a familiar sort of news item, but Rachel had more reason than most to be haunted by this particular story of a missing woman. Rachel's mother had married Stephanie's father after the crime, and Rachel grew up in the shadow of her stepsister's legacy. In Catch the Sparrow, Rachel Rear writes a compulsively readable and unerringly poignant reconstruction of the case's dark and serpentine path across more than two decades. Obsessively cataloging the crime and its costs, drawing intimately closer to the details than any journalist could, she reveals how a dysfunctional justice system laid the groundwork for Stephanie's murder and stymied the investigation for more than 20 years, and what those hard years meant for the lives of Stephanie's family and loved ones. Startlingly, unputdownable, and deeply moving, Catch the Sparrow is a retelling of a crime like no other. So this is really interesting because I know a lot of the time you'll see a documentary or a limited series or a book discussing somebody's family, somebody's crime. And I know that there's a lot of sensitivity around that because if it's not with the family's blessing, it's certainly putting the case out there and opening them up to things that, that perhaps they don't want to be open up to. Yeah. And I do find this interesting that Rachel wrote this about her, her stepsister of sorts and that hopefully this book helps give the family some type of closure mm -hmm. um, in doing so. I know that's always, it's always sensitive and you want to make sure that you're not putting an undue burden on, you know, the family or anybody impacted by this, by shining a spotlight on some of these crimes. But I think, and hope that with this book, you know, having Rachel, retell it. And it sounds like have folks learn where the investigation got hung up and what some of those obstacles were could perhaps help prevent those things from happening again. So that was Catch the Sparrow by Rachel Rear. So my next title is a, uh, now I'm moving into my nonfiction portion of my list. Uh, this 2020 memoir uh, was released to much buzz as author Becky Cooper dives into her own investigation from a co-ed murder at Harvard in 1969. You have to remember, he reminded me, that Harvard is older than the U.S. government. You have to remember because Harvard doesn't let you forget. So spooky quote right from the jump from the book itself. So starting in 1969, it was the height of counterculture and the year universities would seek to curb the unruly spectacle of student protest. The winter that Harvard University would begin the tumultuous process of merging with Radcliffe, its all-female sister school. 
and the year that Jane Britton, an ambitious 23-year-old graduate student in Harvard's anthropology department and daughter of Radcliffe Vice President J. Boyd Britton, would be found bludgeoned to death in her Cambridge, Massachusetts apartment. Forty years later, Becky Cooper, a curious undergrad, will hear the first whispers of the story. In the first telling, the body was nameless. The story was this. A Harvard student had had an affair with her professor, and the professor had murdered her in the Peabody Museum of Archaeology and Ethnology because she'd threatened to talk about the affair. Though the rumor proves false, the story that unfolds, one that Cooper will follow for 10 years, is even more complex. It's a tale of gender inequality in academia, a cowboy culture among empowered male elites, the silencing effect of institutions, and our compulsion to rewrite the stories of female victims. So in We Keep the Dead Close, this memoir kind of looks at a mirror of misogyny and murder. It's at once a rumination of the violence and oppression that rules our revered institutions, a ghost story reflecting one young woman's past onto another's present, and the love story for a girl who was lost to history. Uh, and that is We Keep the Dead Close by Becky Cooper. Like an immediate bestseller, looking at the description of this book alone, over 25 different media outlets were immediately putting it on their tops and best lists. And it's just a like truly a fascinating exploration of basically how these revered institutions silence voices, how they uh, hide wrongdoings and misgivings and basically sweep deaths under the rug to maintain their prestige. To go from 1969 to basically when, when Becky became an undergrad in 2009 and then to work on this for what totals like 10 years, uh, ending in 2019 and then this releasing in 2020. It's just a fascinating look at, you know, kind of like how the past will repeat itself. And yeah, so definitely worth a read and important to remember. Hey, hey there. there, I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. See you soon. Bonjour. This is Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. I'm Andrew Pryor. And every week, I bring you the wonderful and fabulous people involved in French food, whether they're here in France like me or from around the world. Each week, we dive into a specific topic, be it a French dish, an ingredient, or a French cuisine cooking technique. My guests are all about French food. So come join me on Fabulously Delicious, the French food podcast. Bon app. Speaking of institutions, I'm going to jump this pick up the list to go along with your last one, and that is Who Killed Jane Stanford? A Gilded Age Tale of Murder, Deceit, Spirits, and the Birth of a University. This is by Richard White. And so I had no idea 
about any type of nefarious origins. I guess I don't know that much about how these, you know, universities were founded. I mean, like I know about Yale and Harvard, but I don't know any of the backstory. We just know they're prestigious Ivy League universities. This book kind of brought to light something I had no idea about. So presented from a historical perspective as well, which I think is interesting. So in 1885, Jane and Leland Stanford co-founded a university to honor their recently deceased young son. After her husband's death in 1893, Jane Stanford, a devoted spiritualist who expected the university to inculcate her values, steered Stanford into eccentricity and public controversy for more than a decade. In 1905, she was murdered in Hawaii. A victim, according to the Honolulu coroner's jury, of strychnine poisoning. I find it hard to believe that any poisoning is accidental. With her vast fortune as the university's lifeline, the Stanford president at the time and his allies quickly sought to foreclose challenges to her bequests by constructing a story of death by natural causes. The cover-up gained traction in the murky labyrinths of power, wealth, and corruption of Gilded Age San Francisco. The murderer walked. Deftly sifting the scattered evidence and conflicting stories of suspects and witnesses, Richard White gives us the first full account of Jane Stanford's murder and its cover-up. Against the backdrop of the city's machine politics, rogue policing, tong wars, and heated newspaper rivalries, White's search for the murderer draws us into Jane Stanford's imperious household and the academic enmities of the university. Although Stanford officials claimed that no one could have wanted to murder Jane, we meet several people who had the motives and the opportunity to do so. One of these, we discover, also had the means. What? Yeah, poisoning. What? Poisoning is almost never accidental. Strychnine poisoning? Right. That's sus. So that was Who Killed Jane Stanford by Richard White. I do find it interesting when they present these true crime books from the historical perspective. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously 1905 is long gone. Um, And so even if they didn't get justice at the time, hopefully shedding some light onto the scattered evidence now um, and sort of putting the pieces together is helpful, but that I had no idea that the founding of Stanford was so controversial, I guess. Right. So controversial. Uh, so kind of mired in that time period of spiritualism. And it sounds like a lot of history books went along with the the sort of thought that she died of a heart attack or of just natural causes. And so I do think that type of thing is interesting where um, there might be more to the story than what was previously believed. So always worth, always worth investigating. It sounds like. And it's an important reminder that like, we have to keep calling for justice to be served. There are plenty of cold cases that we seem to know these answers to, or things that were ruled for the favor of power. And, you know, we're, we're seeing it today in life as well, that people aren't, you know, kind of justly ruled for. So Exactly. And to keep, to keep questioning things, 
you know, because if a majority of history books said that she died of natural causes and that's not the case, then also making sure that those history books get updated. So my next nonfiction pick is a winner of the Edgar Award for Best Fact Crime. This is Last Call by Elon Green. It's a gripping, true story told here for the first time of the last call killer and the gay community of New York City that he preyed upon. So the townhouse bar in Midtown of July 1992, the piano player seems to know every song ever written. The crowd belts out the lyrics to their favorites, and a man standing nearby is drinking a scotch and water. The man strikes the piano player as forgettable. He looks bland and inconspicuous, not at all what you think a serial killer looks like, but that's what he is. And tonight, he has his sights set on a gray-haired man. He will not be his first victim, nor will he be his last. The last call killer preyed upon gay men in New York in the 80s and 90s and had all the hallmarks of the most notorious serial killers. Yet because of the sexuality of his victims, the sky-high murder rates, and the AIDS epidemic, his murders have been almost entirely forgotten. This tells the story of the last call killer and the decades-long chase to find him, and at the same time, it paints a portrait of his victims and a vibrant community navigating threat and resilience. So that's Last Call by Elon Green. I think it's always important to call out the communities that are truly just overlooked, and this paints a strong picture of where we were at in the 80s and 90s, you know, the ways that we were truly kind of sweeping things under the rug or, you know, just kind of saying like, oh, well, you know, whatever. So a fascinating look uh, at at a very specific serial killer and at a specific period in New York. My next pick is Tell Me Everything, The Story of a Private Investigation by Erica Krauss. This is also from earlier this year. Apparently, I only picked books that came out in 2022. So um, just in case you're wondering, all of my picks are recently published. You're keeping it fresh. (laughs) But it's interesting. This book in particular starts in 2002. So this is part memoir and part literary true crime. Tell Me Everything is the mesmerizing story of a landmark sexual assault investigation and the female private investigator who helped crack it open. So Erica Krauss has one of those faces, the I don't know why I'm telling you this, people say, you know, spilling their confessions to her. And so in the fall of 2002, Erica accepted a new contract job investigating lawsuits as a private investigator. The role seemed perfect for her, but she quickly realized that she had no idea what she was doing. Uh, Then a lawyer named Grayson assigned her to investigate a sexual assault, a college student who was attacked by football players and recruits at a party a year earlier. Erica knows she should turn the assignment down. Her, Her own history with sexual violence makes it all too personal. But she takes the job anyway, inspired by Grayson's conviction that he could help change things forever. And maybe she could too. Over the next five years, Erica learns everything she can about PI technique, tracking down witnesses, and investigating a culture of sexual assault and harassment ingrained in the university's football program. But as the investigation grows into a national scandal and a historic civil rights case that revolutionizes Title IX law, Erica finds herself increasingly consumed. When the case and her life both implode at the same time, Erica must figure out how to help win the case without losing herself. 
So again, a really interesting look at something that Erica was a major part of, um, retelling this story, you know, in both, you know, memoir and also literary true crime. Um, this is Tell Me Everything by Erica Krauss. Absolutely related, like so important to be giving these voices to be calling out injustice. And I think that's something that is important about reading true crime. If you're actually looking at it as a perspective on why people do what they do and how we can try to change, I don't know, kind of how cases are handled, how situations are handled, how we start listening to victims in a, in a more meaningful and real way. Exactly. And I do think there is that balance, you know, she was part of this investigation and mm -hmm. this case for years and years. How do you push for change, but also maintain your own well-being, you know? And I think that that's yeah. really, really interesting. And at times, I think at times very difficult to maintain, you know, those healthy boundaries when you are trying to advocate for other people and when you're working so hard and you're so consumed by, you know, the lives of these people, how do you, again, how do you balance and how do you maintain your own well-being? you know, when you're working these things that are seemingly tireless. So a really important story, I think from Erica Krauss. Well, my second to last title looks at Tokyo, one of the safest cities in the world, but with a fascinating justice system and a hidden world of crime. This is People Who Eat Darkness by Richard Lloyd Perry. So this looks at the case of Lucy Blackman, a tall blonde 21-year-old who stepped out into the vastness of Tokyo in the summer of 2000 and disappeared forever. The following winter, her dismembered remains were found buried in a seaside cave. So Perry is an award-winning foreign correspondent who covered Lucy's disappearance and followed the massive search for her, the long investigation, and the even longer trial. Over 10 years, he earned the trust of her family and friends, won unique access to the Japanese detectives and Japan's convoluted legal system, his description, and delved deep into the mind of the man accused of the crime, Joji Obara, described by the judge as unprecedented and extremely evil. So this book kind of looks at all of the different sides of the case, of the investigation of Japan's justice system, and really calls out some of the, the things that, at least here in America, we can't understand because our justice system is so different. Um, some of the intricacies, some of the ways that, that rulings happen in Japan, you know, there's just a lot of... Um, fascinating pieces of this. And I threw this one on my list recently just to kind of read to get a different understanding because I tend to, I don't know, listen to a true crime that is around cases in the U.S. because I have a, a better understanding of how things work or should be working here. And, you know, that's where I have the opportunity to also try to advocate for change. So um, this was to expand my palate into a, a, a place that I haven't ever thought of of crime. Uh, so once again, that is People Who Eat Darkness by Richard Lloyd Perry. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. Certainly crimes happen outside of the United States, but it <laughs> yeah. does seem like perhaps given the size and the scope of America, yeah. there's no shortage of stories to tell in, in that regard. 
Um, but that is a great point to, to expand your knowledge or just to Mm -hmm. there's expand your interest. I always think that's a great point. And I certainly need to do a better job at that as well. It's hard. It's hard to challenge the like status quo and, and find like the, the intro point that's like, oh, well, this is an interest of mine. How do I jump a little further or what's next on my list? Exactly. I, my final pick is by somebody that I think anyone who has a passing interest in true crime in America will know. And it's by John E. Douglas, who is the American retired special agent. Um, and he was really at the forefront of criminal profiling. So he is the inspiration for the Netflix show Mindhunter and a ton of other things. He has several books that he's written cataloging some of the criminals um, and serial killers that he had encountered and profiled over his long and prestigious career. So this is When a Killer Calls, a haunting story of murder, criminal profiling, and justice in a small town by John Douglas and Mark Olshaker. It's always in a small town, isn't it? So this is from, again, the legendary FBI criminal profile profiler. And again, that inspiration for the Netflix show Mindhunter. On May 31st, 1985, two days before her high school graduation, Shari Smith was abducted from the driveway of her family home in South Carolina. Based on the crime scene and the abductor's repeated and taunting calls to the family, law enforcement quickly realized they were dealing with a sophisticated and highly dangerous criminal. A letter arrived the next day entitled Last Will and Testament, in which Shari knowing she was to be murdered, wrote bravely and achingly of her love for her parents, siblings, and boyfriend, saying that while they would miss her, she knew they would persevere through their faith. The abduction rocked her quiet town, triggering a massive manhunt and bringing in the FBI, which enlisted profiler John Douglas. A few days later, a phone call told the family where they could find her body. Ugh. Then nine-year-old Deborah May Hemlick was kidnapped from her yard, confirming the harsh realization that Smith's murder was not a random act and that a serial killer was evolving. The only way to stop him would be to use the study of criminal behavior to anticipate his next move before he could kill again. Douglas devised a risky and emotionally fraught strategy to use Shari's lookalike older sister Dawn to bait and draw out the unknown subject. Dawn and her parents courageously agreed. One of the most haunting investigations of Douglas's storied career, this case details how the eerily accurate profile he created, combined with dedicated police work and cutting-edge forensic science, helped end a reign of criminal terror. As Shari's family took incredible personal risk to lure her killer from the shadows, Douglas and the FBI pushed criminal profiling to its limits, culminating in one of the most dramatic and and effective confrontations with a sadistic and remorseless killer. Wow, that's a lot. But I do find it fascinating in the early 80s and so on that there were some of these things like criminal profiling and obviously science, forensic science that were still very much new. Mm-hmm. Um, that hopefully in the, I can't do math, 30 odd 
40, 40 odd, 30, 40, 40 odd years, years since that some of those things that were in their infancy at that time are what is able to help solve these cases and give people peace of mind sooner, but also prevent additional things like that from happening. So yeah. Wow. That was when a killer calls by John E. Douglas and Mark Olshaker. Some like fascinating reading from, from him and like the idea behind mind Hunter and, and the history of like the creation of profiling and, and the cases that like that he experienced it. It is a wild ride. Ooh. Yeah. And that he, I do find it really interesting. Like he dedicated his life and his whole career to, to this criminal profiling and to like studying serial killers and serial killers and, and making sure they were caught and put behind bars or, or, or getting that justice for those families where they could. And I just can't imagine how much that must have, and probably still does weigh upon him right to have to have been instrumental in solving these crimes and catching these killers over so many years like it wasn't just one right it was several um and what that must what that must feel like i mean so the the study of criminal profiling certainly owes a lot to the people that dedicate their lives to figuring it out and making advances but wow to see how his work was initially used to see maybe some of the ways that it's been abused, but also some of the ways that it's been like instrumental in changing the course of, of like crime history. I I can't imagine what that's like. Exactly. And all we can do is just, I guess, be curious about it and see the ways in which other people are fighting the good fight. For real. So my last book is Without Mercy by Gary Provost. On any Sunday morning in the Florida Redlands, Dee Castile might have served you pancakes at the IHOP. She was a hardworking, cheerful waitress, one of the nicest people you'd ever want to know. She was also a three bottle a day alcoholic, hopelessly in love with the IHOP's manager, Alan Bryant. Bryant wanted his live-in lover, IHOP owner Art Venetia dead, and Dee Castile helped him to arrange it. After Venetia's murder, Dee and Bryant moved into his house, forged checks, spent his money, and embezzled from the IHOP to buy gifts for Bryant's boyfriends. But there was an even more gruesome killing to come. Without Mercy is an engrossing, bizarre, true story that traces the twisted path to a loathsome crime. But in itself, the story of middle-class citizens gone wrong, of an almost perfect murder, the traumas of alcoholism, and a legal system that can be deadly in itself. Dee Castile was an ordinary woman who now stands convicted of one of the most cold-blooded crimes of this century. That is Without Mercy by Gary Provost. I mean, it's wild twists and turns. Could you imagine anything that was coming next while I was sharing? No, I mean, you said IHOP and I thought like cozy pancake vibes, but obviously I'm talking true crime, so. Right, it's not strawberry flavored syrup. It's uh it's murder and wow. and wild murder like the combination of alcoholism and being in love with someone who will never love you back to like using being used using others and 
Yeah, that manipulation that's potentially at play to commit crimes for somebody else. So uh, a fascinating read. Um, Provost has written a lot of different, he definitely kind of like, I mean, this is from the Gary Provost True Crime Collection. So he definitely writes a lot of true crime accounts. Uh, but there's a lot of ways you can kind of look into the story of Dee Castile and her involvement in this, this kind of like brutal crime spree. And I think that's why I like fiction mysteries is because yeah. there's always a resolution. There's always, the you know, things are solved. We found the killer. We caught the killer. We know what happened. Right. And I do think that depending on the case with true crime, you could have something completely unresolved. Absolutely. I have a weird relationship with true crime because like I enjoy a true crime podcast so I can learn more. Uh, I, I want to try to be understanding and, and if there are opportunities where we can even help, you know, provide information or, or share, especially uh, when we look at like our neighbors to the North in Canada and the like rampant kidnapping and and just like missing indigenous women of Canada. Like if there's ways to share stories and raise voices and awareness, like that's amazing. But then there's also the, like, when I'm reading true crime fiction, it's the, like, how inspired by you are this and are you making money off of this or is it transformative? How much is like I'm involved and I have the blessing of people and how much is kind of like pandering to the obsessed. So it's a it's a weird a weird space to be in, but hopefully Emma and I were able to give you some titles to look at that maybe don't show up on every list or that y'all haven't read already. Uh, if you made it to the end, thank you for listening to this true crime episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast. We wanted to try something new today. Hopefully you enjoyed it. As always, you can reach out to us. Our email is professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com. And then of course, remember to rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on socials. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. And as always, happy reading. Readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in Marketplace. Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an evergreen podcast signature program. To learn about other evergreen podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, 
or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon.